0: Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor of theological and vocational formation, which sounds really fancy, but it's just ambiguous enough so I can do a bunch of different things. Um, It's uh, really a gift for me to be able to preach on this text this morning uh, through the the passage of of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and Turn to Luke 19. And if you don't have a Bible, we have people who are coming forward who can give you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, you can just hold on to that one. Um, and uh, if you do own a Bible and you want a second one, like a backup team Bible, feel free. Take one of those as well. But uh, the text that we're jumping into today is pretty interesting. It's it's this Palm Sunday uh, text. Where a lot of strange things seem to be going on. People are like throwing leaves on the ground. And, you know, it, you know, it seems like maybe Jesus steals a donkey. I don't know. Like, there's a lot of things going on. And as a new believer, when I first started coming to church years ago, I remember thinking that... It seems like there's something pretty significant going on in this passage, but I don't get it. Like, I don't know what the donkey's about. I don't know what the palm leaves are about. You see we got palm leaves up here. Benjamin Jensen did a good job getting us some palm leaves for Palm Sunday. He, t- he told me to make sure to encourage you and let you know that these are free-range palm leaves, <laughs> locally grown, uh, and that the uh, removing of the leaf was uh, in a humane way. So... Um, But we have these palm leaves in this passage. We have donkeys. We have people singing songs. And I think it's important for us to dig into the text and understand what these things mean. Because these aren't just random events. They are rich with symbolic history that ultimately is pointing to some significant things about Jesus. Namely, that He is the King and that His kingdom is a, a subversively weak kingdom. I want to start with, with um, doing a little thought exercise, a little imagination. Um, imagine for a moment. Imagine that you were going to stand in line for an iPhone 7. Has an iPhone 7 come out yet, by the way? No, okay. So, you're standing in line for the iPhone 7. You know that it's a big deal. You have researched and you're anticipating all of the bells and whistles and unique things that this iPhone is going to be able to do. So you decide to get in line like 24 hours ahead of time. You're camping out. You're waiting to get the iPhone. You can't wait to just open the box. And every hour counts down, you're thinking of what is going to be inside of that box. What is going to be in there? What unique features are going to be a part of this iPhone? Now imagine you finally get there, and you pay your money, and they give you the box. You leave the iStore, and you go into the parking lot, and you open it up. And when you open it up, you are very surprised by what you see. You see one of those old Nokia phones. (laughs) All it can do is text and make phone calls and like play some little caterpillar game and then, underneath the Nokia phone there 's a note, a letter from the executives at apple and here 's what it says: <clears throat> It says, "Dear customer, the intent of the phone and of the iPhone in particular was to connect people and into in, enrich relationships, but our board has met and come to the conclusion that our phones have often offered a distraction to people that pull us away from those that we love most. Therefore, we've provided this basic phone that will allow you to talk and text, but more importantly, we have given you a plane ticket. A plane ticket for you and ten of your friends to go anywhere in the world, all expenses paid, for a month. We pay for everything. All that we ask is that you focus on building relationships with each other and being with each other. You would be shocked. You would be dumbfounded if that was the case. In in one sense, you were expecting something good and you got something really good. Who would like that to be the case? Yeah, you got something really good. But in another sense, it's completely contrary, the opposite of what you were expecting to find in that box. And that is essentially the the feeling of what's happening to the Jewish people in this passage today. You see, they are waiting. They've been waiting for years and years for the Messiah, this, this warrior king, to come and to deliver them away from Roman occupation. And they're waiting. And Jesus finally comes. And they're anticipating... But the way in which He comes is so unique, so distinct, so contrary to what they were expecting, yet so much better and so much more life-giving. So that's what we have in this passage today. And we will find that Jesus is the true King that they were waiting for, but that He is a King who is subversively weak when they were expecting one who was strong and powerful and mighty and a military warrior. Let me talk a little bit about the passage that we're going to read. The type of literature that this is, or the type of the literature that you find in the Gospels, is this unique kind of literature that's pretty much exclusive to the Gospels. It's called charismatic history. And it's history that's that's done not in a modern biography way where you try to get all of the right events and the perfect sequence and all the dates right. It's not like watching the History Channel, but what it is, is it's a, it tells you history, the true events, the actual events of history, but arranges them in such a way that it's almost like a sermon that is evoking a response. So when you see differences between the Gospels, it's because they're focused on different contexts, some to Roman context, some to Jewish context, and they choose different events to highlight. But one thing that's notable is that this day, this day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, is, is talked about at length by all four Gospel writers. That this event is so crucial that all four of them gave it time and and put it in uh, the the prominence of the the gospel that they were writing so that we would behold certain things about Jesus. Walking through the text, we'll see what happens here. First of all, you need to know that what is preceding this is Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. It, It says that He sets His face toward Jerusalem. He's intentionally moving toward Jerusalem because Passover is coming. The the Jewish festival where they celebrated their deliverance from out of Egypt. And he's headed to Jerusalem. But not only is he headed there to celebrate Passover, he has explicitly said to his disciples that he is going to die. Just as they celebrate Passover Uh, with breaking the bread Jesus is going to be the broken bread that gives them life just as they celebrate by by uh by eating meat from a from a, a lamb that has died he's going to be the lamb that's going to die for people he is moving to Jerusalem and he knows what he's doing but on his way to Jerusalem it's important to know what's happening because he doesn't just go like a nonstop shot there But the way he's walking and where he's walking is really significant. He's healing blind people. He's he's welcoming in people like Zacchaeus, this tax collector, this swindler, and welcoming him into the kingdom of God by the grace of Jesus. And then he, he does something that's huge. He goes to see his friend Lazarus, and he has died. And people are mourning and weeping. And Jesus speaks life back into Lazarus. And this is significant because the people in that day would have been looking for a Messiah who would bring sight to the blind, who would raise people from the dead. So crowds start gathering around Jesus and they start wondering, is it, is it Him? Is it the Messiah? Is it the one to come to deliver us? And as He's moving towards Jerusalem, there's this palpable expectation that the Messiah is coming. You see, the people lived under Roman occupation. Imagine if America was taken over by like Canada, right? And there are like Mounties everywhere on the streets. And you can't play football anymore. You have to play like soccer or hockey. And if you go order a bacon, they give you some little like piece of ham or something like that. Everywhere you go, there's a sense of your culture, your your, your nation, your people ha- is, has been punked by another nation. And I say that sort of flippantly, but this was real. This was brutal. This was harsh. Roman soldiers were, weren't messing around. And so people were waiting for this Messiah to come, this king who would come and, and, and cleanse the city and bring them out and to kick out this Roman occupation. They imagined the Messiah would be one known of strength, power, military might, prestige, fame, winning. But he was something different. This was Passover time and people were expecting that the Messiah might come during the Passover. They were, Passover was such a rich event in Israel's history that that they, um, that they expected big things to happen. Not only were they delivered from, from Egypt, but also they, were, they entered into the promised land during Passover. And the stories of Ruth and Rahab and a number of other things throughout the Bible happened during Passover. And so, you know, it, when it's Passover, they're expecting this might be the time that Jesus comes. They don't know when and which Passover and those sorts of things. So it's kind of like March Madness. I always know that in March, I'm going to see one of the best basketball games of the year. The only college games worth watching. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know it's probably coming in March. And that was them for for Passover. They're waiting in this unique time for the Messiah to come. But then what happens is pretty interesting. Jesus shows up. He's outside of Jerusalem. And he's about to head in. And he looks over to two of his disciples and he says, Hey, um, go to the next village. There's going to be a donkey tied up. And I want you to go get that donkey and bring it to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just tell them that the Lord needs it, right? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be the disciples? You're like, is he telling us to steal a donkey? You're like walking into the village. You're like looking for a donkey. You see one and you start untying it very quietly. And you start walking away. And then the owner's like, hey, you're stealing my donkey. What are you doing? And they're like, the Lord needs this. And for some reason, that flies with them. They're like, okay, cool. Take it. Uh, it doesn't say what, what happens there. But I'm always intrigued by what that dynamic was. Then they bring the donkey to Jesus. And, and and people see this donkey come in, and they put their cloaks on the donkey, their, their jackets, and they start putting them on the ground, and they put palm branches on the ground, and Jesus starts riding this donkey into Jerusalem. And as He's riding, people start singing Psalm 18, which we read earlier this morning. They start... They start singing and saying that, that blessed is, is uh, that he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Their, their, their expectation of the Messiah, they think that he's here. And then the Pharisees see what's happening, feeling like it's a blasphemous moment, and tell Jesus, hey, you better, you better shut up your people who are claiming you're ki- that you are the king, that you're the Messiah, that you are the God. They're almost worshiping you as a God. You better shut them up. And what Jesus says to the, Messiah, to the Pharisees, he says, listen, if they were quiet, the rocks would cry out. This real sense that the Messiah has finally come is here. And Jesus is entering into the temple. And all of these things He's doing are very intentional. Jesus is dramatizing these rich symbols in the Old Testament to make the declaration that He is in fact the King. He is in fact the King. And that is point number one. He's doing these intentional acts to show that He is the King of Israel. The one that they've been waiting for. But not only Israel but of all nations and all of the earth. Look at some of the symbolism here. So first of all, Jesus borrowing the donkey. Let's get into that. Let's talk about what that's about. Luke 19, verse 26, or 29 through 34 says this. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, away, uh, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. And its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This actually, it, through Jewish eyes, isn't as strange as you, it sounds to us. This isn't Jesus jacking a donkey because he likes donkeys or something like that. It's not a robbery of a petting zoo. But what Jesus is doing here is something very intentional. As he approaches Jerusalem and sees the this, this city that God chose to put his temple and reveal himself, Jesus is making a clear statement that he's the Messiah. And there's this, this prophecy that the Messiah would come in Zechariah 9, nine, And it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. And Jesus is saying, what you are expecting in this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, 9, that talks about the king who will come, and who will bring salvation, and who will rescue, I am he. And he dramatizes it by getting a donkey, and riding the donkey into Jerusalem. This passage would be on the minds of the heroes that day. And that's a very bold statement of Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one that they were waiting for in Zechariah nine. But also you see these other symbolic acts. They're throwing cloaks on the ground. They're throwing their jackets on the ground. If someone threw their jacket on the ground in front of me, I would think they want to fight or something like that. I don't, wouldn't understand it. But in that day, it was an act of homage to the king. When you saw someone who was greater than you, that, that, that was the king, you could take off your jacket so that they wouldn't have to walk on the ground and they would walk on it. And the palm branches are the same thing. Palm branches had this, this connotation of, of victory in this Jewish national symbol of victory, kind of like the maple leaf or something. I don't know what the maple leaf stands for. But the palm branch stands for victory and the victorious king. So they're throwing that on the ground. And everybody knows what's going on. The king has come. But then in verse 35, it says this. Uh, or actually, I'm sorry, verse... Um, 37, it says this, As He was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the, all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Essentially, what the crowds are doing here is they're singing the songs of, of of Psalm 118, these words come right out of Psalm 118, and this is a passage, a a psalm that they would sing on historic and important events, and it talks about the one who is come to save the people, to rescue the people. So they're singing this song as Jesus uh, enters into town, but then he also does something that's fairly scandalous for that day, in verse 38 and 39. Uh, or in 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And up until this point, Jesus has been pretty low-key. He'll heal someone. He'll say, don't talk about it. But he's being very bold at this point. He's entering Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are saying, they're saying you're the Messiah. They're saying that you're the one who would come? And Jesus is saying, that is so true. That is so true that if you were to silence all of these people, the rocks and all of creation would cry out because it is true that I am the King, I am the Messiah, I am here. And what Jesus is doing is He's laying claim to Jerusalem. He's laying claim to Jerusalem and the ends of the earth because the very next... Uh, thing you see when jesus enters jerusalem is he goes into the temple where all the nations were being exploited and kicked out and he starts driving them out and he says this will be this this is going to be the house of prayer for all of the nations that god is the king over every aspect of the world from tempe to turkey from jerusalem to new jersey from the CEO's corner office to the, to the janitor's bucket. Jesus is king. He's Lord. From the suburbs, the city, and the small town, and every inch of highway in between, in every nation in the world, in every second of the day, throughout every moment in history, Jesus is king. And he's declaring it in this moment. And we as Americans, I, I don't think, catch the, the weight of this. Because we're like, yeah, but we don't have kings anymore. Kings aren't really a big deal. We don't really have a reference for kings. We're, we're, We're America. We have Fourth of July. We don't have kings, right? But the reality is, is that throughout the history of the world... There have been these prominent figures that everyone put their hopes in and their trust in. And that when someone says, I am king, it means that you now need to respond in a certain way to me as a king. You will react. And, and, and that has implications for your life. And it has implications for our lives as well as Jesus declares his kingship. But what's interesting about Jesus is that not only is he the king... But he is the king who is calling us in a unique way than all the other kings of the world do. The other kings of earth from like Napoleon and Genghis Khan and the dictators of today. These people say that you must have full allegiance to me and I'm going to take from you. And when they send their ambassadors out, they send their ambassadors out with the strong fist of power. But Jesus in his unique way, sends us out into every industry and every aspect of the world and says, I am sending you out because I'm the king over all of these things. And as you're there, you are to live there and represent me with humble service and self-giving love. This isn't an arrogant triumphalism, but it's this humble, unique king. Now, we may be saying, yeah, right, Jesus is my king because, you know, I'm American. I don't have any other kings. But the reality is, is what a king is, is a king is the, the thing or the person that you give your allegiance to and you give the most prominence to in your life. And the reality is that the human heart is a kingmaker. We need to have our life oriented on something and, and, or someone. And if it's not oriented on like an official king, you're going to make a king out of something else. Let me give a few examples of what might be our kings in this room. The king of experience. You want to live an Instagrammable life. You want to eat the best food, go on the best vacations, live in the coolest cities, and have all of these rich experiences. And your life is oriented around that. But the problem with that is that that will eventually fail you because there is a a a void in your heart a void in your heart that that uh, that you need a grand incredible experience and the grand incredible experience that you were made for is knowing and being known by God and that experience can't be replicated elsewhere And with every new experience you get, it's going to begin to get duller and duller until you are clamoring for more and more and more. And it'll never satisfy. But then there's the idol of self-reliance, very popular in America. And it takes shape a few ways. Like on, on one hand, you have like preppers and stuff who are ready for like if things you know, go bad in America or zombie apocalypse or something like that. They've got all of the canned food and they know how to grow gardens and they've learned how to shoot their guns, but they don't need anybody's help. They can survive on their own. But then there's also kind of an urban version of it too. And it's kind of like this... Um, This self-optimization thing that's really popular right now. There are all these podcasts like the Timothy or the Tim Ferriss podcast where he interviews the most successful people in the world and asks what their schedule is and what vitamins they take. And there's this idea that you can optimize yourself so that you can become this, this ultimate almost superhuman. But it will fail you because sin is in the world and sin is in your heart and you are falling apart. And you can't, there's not a pill that you can take that will save you from that. There's not a method that that will work. But there is one who is completely self-optimized. Jesus. He is the one who is the whole person and you find your wholeness in him. That king is going to fail you. All of your idols will never fail to fail you. Then there's, there's the idol of power, also very popular right now. And that's where you only respect those with power and rep- rep- reputation, with bravado, with money, with accolade. And you decide who you're going to spend your time with based on who makes you look best, who you can get you more power, and who is the more powerful person. You value toughness and, and you scoff the most vulnerable. And you tell them to pull their, 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 themselves up by their bootstraps. And it's this very power-worshipping thing that has been present since Genghis Khan and Napoleon and Alexander the Great. But let me ask you this. Where are they now? Their kingdom's gone. They're not following anybody. But where is Jesus now? Jesus is on every continent of the world, and you can find followers of him in every continent and all over the world 2,000 years later fully devoted to him. There's not enough power in the kings that you give allegiance to. There's only power in Jesus for those things. And so I want to ask you this very important question. Is Jesus your king? Or are you trying to be the king of Jesus? Because what we see in this passage is that the crowds were cheering for Jesus. There were a lot of people cheering for Jesus. But within a few days, they would be the same people looking at Jesus and saying, crucify him. They were, some people in the crowd were honoring Jesus for this one sole purpose. They thought Jesus could help bring about their agenda. And so there's two ways of engaging with Jesus. Is he your king? Were you engage with his agenda? Or do you only relate to him as he will uh, uh, serve your agenda? And the fruit of this is massively important. When Jesus has been the king of people throughout history, it has borne some of the richest life-giving things that have served others and magnified God. Christian communities with Jesus at the center have created institutions like hospitals and universities, fought for the sanctity of human life, created parks like Central Park, where it led the civil rights movement, uh, led the abolition of slavery in England. They did things like Humane Society. The puppies ha- have, have Christians to thank. They started things like Alcoholics Anonymous and, and structuring societies around the rule of law and fighting and for promoting and shaping human rights and reducing infant mortality. When you have Jesus as the king and not any of these other things, you can release yourself to serve him and, and pour yourself out for these life-giving institutions. But... If you think of yourself as the King of Jesus, where you're going to use Him for your agenda, historically that has created some of the most brutal, awful, image-bearer-destroying things in our history. Slavery in the name of Jesus. Indian schools and the genocide of Native Americans in the name of Jesus. The KKK the Crusades, the Lord's Resistance Army, the Holocaust, and the toxic public discourse that you see in the comments section of just about every news article that's written now in the name of Jesus. But it's not in the name of the true Jesus. It's in the name of the Jesus that people create to serve and to, to, to baptize their own idolatries. And we need to repent if we're making, trying to make, uh, make ourselves the king of Jesus and, and live a life with Jesus as king. But then I want to move to the second point. And this is a shorter point, but it's a scandalous one. And it's that Jesus is the subversively weak king. You see, the, the Jewish people in that time, what they were expecting was something that was really interesting. They were expecting a a Messiah who was tough, who would bring about victory with a military power, with an ethnocentric vision that was going to make the Jews the center of the world, the Jewish people the center of the world. They wanted, in the midst of their dissatisfaction with the Roman occupation, you know what they wanted? They wanted to make Jerusalem great again. But Jesus is the complete opposite of what they were expecting. He comes as the vulnerable and humble king whose subversive weakness conquers the powers of sin, Satan, and death, and every institution that is based on those things. His kingdom is marked by a powerful vulnerability that sees the overlooked, that welcomes the excluded, that empowers the vulnerable and invites them to come feast with the creator of the world where all the other kings were only looking for the powerful. Jesus was looking for those who were overlooked. And if you were there in this moment, you would feel this palpable like, like sense of a rally that was coming around on Palm Sunday. Where they were wanting this person to come in and be tough and to, to, to take on Rome in this violent way. The crowds wanted a king with bravado, but Jesus came with stunning humility. They wanted someone who would stomp their enemies, but Jesus came washing feet. The crowds wanted Israel powerful again, but instead they saw this humble servant coming in on a donkey and not a warhorse. You see, that's the way that it operated back then, that the kings of the earth would come in in these powerful war horses. And you see Jesus dramatizing the subversively weak nature of his kingdom in the, in, in the various things he chooses. The fact that he chooses a donkey rather than a warhorse is fulfilling prophecy. But it would also be very scandalous in that day. Jesus not only chose a donkey, but like a baby donkey. From the petting zoo that you put your two-year-old on that has never carried anyone before. It would have been, would have been silly seeing someone come in like that. Like, here comes the king on his tricycle. Like, that's what it would have been like. And some commentators say that what Jesus is doing is he's he's uh he's he's sat he's doing satire in this moment that he's mocking all the kings of the earth who think with their power that they can really bring life to a place and his choice of the weapon is the cross not with and he won't use the cross to kill but he will use the cross to die and to bring life to others And his choice of a team, it's this procession of vulnerable and rejected people that you saw gathering around him on the way to Jerusalem. Formerly blind people, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, widows, children. You can imagine what what this would be like. I mean, I just want to, to help kind of like give a vision of what this would be like. Imagine if the inauguration of the president was happening. And instead of coming in on a motorcade and in a limo, he like came in on a tricycle or a fixed gear bike or something like that. And not only that, but he's surrounded by the beautiful image bearers that often get overlooked. There's refugees, elderly, people on the autism spectrum. And these are the people that he appoints to his cabinet and puts in the place of honor and prestige. Imagine that his first act in office is to take all of the powerful and to not, not to, to uh, diminish them, but to give them freedom and life by leading into the city of Washington, D.C. And going on a mission of humbly cleaning the toilets along with the CEOs and the senators. This is the type of king that it's putting forward. Subversive. It would have made your heart tremble if you were a leader in that day based on what Jesus was about. It would have been threatening. And this is the nature of His kingdom. On His way to Jerusalem, He talks to His disciples and He says this about true leadership and the nature of His kingdom. In Mark 10, 42-45, He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so for those of us who believe in this Jesus and this nature of his kingdom, this is how we live into his kingdom. Are we an embassy of the kingdom of God, or are we an outpost of idols? One of the ways you can uh, diagnose that is if you look around and see who's around you. Are the type of people that Jesus was gathering around you the most vulnerable? In your wedding party, was there a refugee? (laughs) At your table, when you're uh, having a meal, are there folks uh, with developmental disabilities? When you're seeking a big decision in life, do you call the older, wiser people you know, or do you contribute to the the culture of youth worship? Are you moving toward the people that Jesus would see? And that would show that you are, in fact, living into his kingdom. Because you're near the vulnerable. And I want to just close with the two options that you have that this passage gives you. You can perish with the powerful, or you can rejoice with the vulnerable. You may be offended by the idea that I'm saying that you will perish with the powerful. But the reality is, is that you're in company of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious, idol worshipers who knew more of the Bible than anyone else and missed God. They were offended by Jesus. And your allegiance to the power, to the the idols of this world, and to the various powerful forms of seeking salvation elsewhere is fundamentally a rejection of Jesus. But there is good news. You can rejoice with the vulnerable as the vulnerable. See, we think of the least of these what the Bible speaks about, as someone else. Someone else who's vulnerable. Refugees, um, developmental disabilities, people who are in the hospital. But here's the reality. You know who the vulnerable are? If we're being honest with ourselves, it's us. Now, we may be in a moment where we feel kind of strong and wealthy and good to go, but the reality is, is that we came into this world as babies, unable to survive a day without the help of another. We will leave this world probably with, with uh, someone helping us um, in our last moments and nurses as, as we die. We are not the strong. We are the vulnerable. We are the weak, spiritually, socially, physically. And we need to come to grips with that. I mean, the reality is, is that we live under this illusion of strength. You're going to get in your car here in a few minutes and drive a, a metal or like <laughs> box. 50 miles an hour, and you are one person looking at their text message away from being done. That's vulnerable. That's how vulnerable we are. But the good news is that Jesus did not come on the war horse. He came on the donkey. And he is welcoming the vulnerable into his kingdom. And what he did symbolically on the donkey, he did physically and ultimately on the cross. When he made himself Completely vulnerable to give life to those who are vulnerable. Those who don't have a way to pay for our sins. Those who know that we're going to die. Those who know that we are weak. And if you will acknowledge your weakness, this kingdom is for you. This day, Palm Sunday, 12 years ago, was the day that my grandpa died. It's part of the reason why I wanted to take this text today. He was one of the, most strong, the strongest men I've ever met. His name was Leo Jones. How could you not be a tough guy with a name like Leo Jones? But on this day, 12 years ago, he died of prostate cancer, and I was sitting next to him, and he was one of the weakest people you could imagine. And we are, in fact, that weak. We think we are Leo Jones, but we are the man and the woman on the bed dying of the cancer of sin and needing help. So I want to encourage you, if you want to know that Jesus, if you want to acknowledge your vulnerability and come to him, come see one of us on the side here in a moment as we pray. If you follow that Jesus, press into the ways of his kingdom in all aspects of life, glorifying him and moving towards the most vulnerable. And if you yourself think that you are the powerful person who can stand up to Jesus, know that what happened here in his first coming was meek and gentle. But what happens in his second coming is you are going to have to stand before the creator of this whole world who is in fact the judge. But for us who will receive the king as vulnerable people, let's continue to sing and worship him together. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. For everyone in this room, I thank you for the fact that you have come near to us, Jesus. You have descended from heaven to come near to a a vulnerable and weak humanity and to give us life. Lord, we, we thank you for that. Lord, help us to see our weakness and to see your strength. To see the beautifully subversive weakness of your kingdom and live into it. Help us to humble ourselves and not depend on anything but you. In Jesus' name, amen.